Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. You sure been good to me When I tell you all my secrets You love my mystery And I'm always chasing rainbows And looking through the haze And if I'm in a bad way yeah, Are you here for me? I'm here for you always Let's do it, let's start some mystery Why don't we do it, let's do it, yeah Why Hello listeners it? and welcome to Ohio Mysteries you're listening to a clip of Starts of Mystery by Elisa Bialis. Lisa from Oxford, Ohio is our feature on music artist tonight. So hang out with us to the end of the podcast. We'll tell you all about her and let you listen to that entire song. But right now, let's throw another log on the fire, campers. Let's dig up a new Ohio mystery. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with me is our award-winning journalist, Paula Schleiss, who spent 30 years telling these kinds of stories for the Acker Beacon Journal. Hi, everybody. Okay, Steve, trivia question for you. What worldwide religion has its roots in Ohio? Uh, Ohio, I think of religion as being hundreds of thousands of years old, way before Ohio. So although the uncanny loyalty that people have to the Cleveland sports might qualify, right? <laughs> you mean like religion of the Browns? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. No, no. Now religion is a sports euphemism. I'm talking about a real religion with nearly 17 million people worldwide. Uh, I actually know this one. It's the Mormons, right? Yeah, yeah. Some of them prefer the full name, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. But that's such a mouthful. I have a feeling they're going to have to put up with us just saying Mormons. <laughs> So I know the Mormons have the ties to Ohio, but I guess maybe because Joseph Smith, was he born here? No, no, he wasn't born here, but he said he came here because God commanded him to. And the seven years he spent here growing his church in Northeast Ohio was marked by some of the most significant events of his life, including a near-death experience when a mob in Portage County beat then tarred and feathered him and left him for dead. And it's in Ohio that historians found the first evidence that he was either dabbling in polygamy or getting ready to. As you may or may not know, Joseph Smith ultimately collected up to 40 wives, some as young as 14 years old. And it may have all started with a teenage serving girl in Kirtland. Well, I did not know that. Okay, well, sit back. And let me tell you the story of Joseph Smith and his time in Ohio. As far as I'm concerned, all religion qualifies as a mystery because so much of it is based on faith. But as you'll see, there are also some factual mysteries inside this story.
course, to put Ohio in context, you need to know what happens to Joseph Smith before he arrives here. So first, a brief account of his earlier life. Joseph was a junior, born in 1805 in Sharon, Vermont, as one of 11 children to Lucy and Joseph Smith Sr. Joseph Sr. was a merchant and farmer, and he had a very bad run of business luck. So when the younger Joseph was still a child, the family moved to western New York to try and start over. That area was a hotbed of religious fanaticism. There was a Protestant movement called the Second Great Awakening, marked by a series of loud and emotional revivals. And the Smith family was really caught up in it, including a 12-year-old Joseph. Joseph said it was about this time he began having visions. He wasn't the only one. His parents and his maternal grandfather had all shared that God was communicating to them in dreams and visions. When Joseph turned 15, he reported he had his own divine visit. He said he was praying in a wooded area near his home when God and Jesus appeared to him, telling him that all the modern churches had strayed from the gospel. Three years after that, Joseph said he was visited by an angel named Moroni. The angel told Joseph that he had a role in fulfilling ancient prophecy, adding that, if it were not so, the whole earth would be utterly wasted. The angel revealed to Joseph the location of a buried sacred book that had been written by an ancient prophet named Mormon. This book was made of golden plates and buried in a hillside near Joseph's home in Manchester, New York. Joseph was told he'd find other artifacts as well, including a breastplate and seer stones that would help him interpret that sacred book. Well, Joseph went to the hill and poked about and found the golden plates. He attempted to remove them, but the angel Moroni stopped him. Smith said he returned to the hill several times over the next four years, but he always left the hill without the plates. Still, all the while, he kept having visions and communications with the other side. When Smith was in his early 20s, he met Emma Hale. He courted her, then proposed marriage. Emma's father objected. Joseph did not have a steady job, and Emma's father worried about how he was going to support his daughter. So he put his foot down. And the couple did what couples throughout time have done when Daddy says no. They eloped. The year was 1827. That fall, Smith made one last visit to the hill that the angel Moroni had sent him to. This time, he took his new bride. And that's when he finally, successfully, retrieved the golden plates. They were inscribed with some type of unknown Egyptian-type language, he said, but one that he alone was capable of reading. The angel commanded him not to show the plates to anyone, but to translate them and publish them for all to read. And Joseph did just that. In 1830, Smith published the Book of Mormon. He had help. God had given permission for three men to see the golden plates so they could help transcribe Joseph's interpretation. The men came to be called the three witnesses. 
One of them was a man named Oliver Cowdery. I mention him now because he's going to be coming up again in our story. After the book was done, the angel Moroni returned to Joseph and took the plates back since they were no longer needed. Smith and his followers organized the Church of Christ, and Joseph Smith gained some regional notoriety. His fledgling church started growing, but there was lots of opposition. You can't challenge the mainstream religion without getting pushback. He and his followers were threatened with violence. And as the opposition continued to grow, Smith decided it was time to move his young church, and he knew where he needed to go. In 1831, Joseph said God visited him and commanded him, go to the Ohio. There, a community known as Kirtland, where another Mormon church leader had already acquired about 300 converts to the faith, would become the eastern edge of New Jerusalem. Joseph took most of his followers to Kirtland, but he also sent some further west with another church leader, and they established a second camp in Missouri, calling it the western edge of New Jerusalem. Smith visited his Missouri faithful as often as he could, but he made Ohio his home. In the spring of 1831, soon after arriving in Kirtland, Joseph's wife Emma lost twins in childbirth. Coincidentally, About the same time, the wife of a Mormon convert named John Murdoch died while giving birth to twins. So Mr. Murdoch gave his two motherless babies to Joseph and Emma Smith. Now, Joseph was having a time management problem. He was a father to two adopted children. They were breaking ground on a big grand Mormon temple in Kirtland, and more converts were moving into town every day, each and every one of them seeking an audience with the prophet. Joseph was having an awful lot of trouble finding time to do what he really wanted to get done, mainly draft a new translation of the Bible using divine revelations that he was being given by God. So one of Joseph's faithful had an idea. John Johnson invited Joseph to come stay at his house for a while. The Johnsons lived in the Portage County village of Hiram, and they had some 350 acres of land and a huge palatial house, plenty of room for the Smiths. And since Joseph would be 30 miles away from Mormon Central, visits would be infrequent, and he could have some peace and quiet to focus on his church writings. This proved to be a fateful decision, because it brought Joseph Smith closer to some people who did not like him at all, and further away from the community that might have been able to protect him. On Saturday, March 24, 1832, a mob of 60 men descended on the Johnson home. They broke down the front door. The two babies the Smiths had adopted from the Murdochs had been sick with the measles, and Joseph Smith was holding one of the crying infants, trying to calm him. The home invaders tore the baby boy from his arms, set him down, then forced Joseph, Emma, and the other adults out of the house. When Joseph was outside, he saw they had also pulled his trusted friend, Sidney Rigdon, from a nearby shack. 
Rigdon had been staying on the Johnson property so he could help Joseph write his Bible. And Rigdon's head was bloody, presumably from some kind of blow. Joseph Smith asked the mob, You will spare my life, won't you? Someone replied, Call on your God for help, for we will show you none. The men beat Smith and strangled him to temporary unconsciousness. When he came to, he remembered one man falling upon him and scratching him like a wildcat. Then they dragged Smith some distance from the house and away from the others to a doctor that had been enlisted to castrate him. They ripped Joseph's clothes from his body, and the doctor held a knife prepared to separate Joseph from his genitals. But his hand started to shake, and he decided he couldn't do it. The doctor decided to poison Joseph instead. He had a small glass vial of nitric acid, and he attempted to jam it into Smith's mouth. But Joseph clenched his jaw, and the bottle shattered against his teeth, breaking two of them. The mob's final act was to turn to a bucket of melted pine tar. They poured the hot tar over Smith's naked body and covered the sticky substance in feathers. Tar and feathering was an old and painful punishment used to mock someone. The mob tarred and feathered Sidney Rigdon as well. Then the crowd, under the impression that a group of Mormons were on their way to rescue Joseph, fled leaving the two men for dead. Joseph was able to limp back to the Johnson house. His wife, Emma, fainted at the sight of him, the appearance of the tar making it look as if he had been skinned alive. I'm Richard Serrett. Join me on Strange Planet for in-depth conversations with the world's top paranormal investigators, alien abductees, Bigfoot trackers, monster hunters, time travelers, alternative archaeologists, remote viewers, and more. As I was on the way to Area 51, I was stopping on the side of the road and just taking measurements, and I found this one spot where time slowed down by a fraction of a second. It's not supposed to do that. From the two big categories, animal mutilations and human abductions, you have to conclude that genetic material is being harvested. Well, I reached for a rifle and uh, I, I turned and looked and it was, it was already moving away and it was descending the bluff. I, there's no way any human could have went down it. It was probably a 75 degree angle straight down almost. On Richard Serrett's Strange Planet, we're redefining reality. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Do not go any further. Turn around. Go home. Throughout the night, friends used corn husker knives to try and scrape the tar from the raw flesh of their two church leaders. Joseph Smith was undaunted. The next day, he preached a sermon and baptized three people. There was another casualty that night. The 11-month-old infant boy torn from Smith's arm before they attacked him was knocked to the floor as the crowd pushed the adults from the house. Left partially exposed that cold March night for most of the drama, he caught pneumonia and died five days later. While several witnesses wrote about this event, there is no agreement on what the mob's motivation was. Some have speculated that one of John Johnson's sons, Eli, had organized the mob 
to punish Joseph Smith. The charge was that while staying with the Johnsons, Joseph had sex with Eli's sister, Nancy. That's why the attack was supposed to culminate with Joseph's castration, as the theory went. We don't know if Joseph and Nancy had sex at that time, but it is a fact that much later, Nancy Johnson will become one of Joseph Smith's wives. Other historians disagreed with that motivation, saying they thought it more likely that the locals simply didn't like the element that had moved into the neighborhood. I told you the Johnsons had some 350 acres. Well, when the Smiths started staying there, church followers started showing up asking if they could build lean-tos on the Johnson property just so they could be close to the prophet. The historians who saw this as a motivation said the land probably started looking like a shanty town, and the local residents may have been fearful that the entire Mormon community was relocating from Kirtland to their scenic, bucolic, and very Protestant village. They also pointed out that it appears that at least two of John Johnson's own sons These are the sons of the man who had invited Joseph Smith to live with them. They were in the mob, possibly because they didn't want their family land turned over to the Mormons. And some mob members had their own personal motivation. I found a story about one of them. Living across the street from John Johnson was a man named Simon's Ryder. Simons had met Joseph Smith months earlier and was at first very eager about this new faith, even getting baptized. But something happened that caused Ryder to question Joseph Smith's divinity. He asked the prophet what the Lord wanted him to do, and Smith wrote out for him something called a missionary certificate, I guess a way to document that someone was charged with doing good deeds for the church. And in the certificate, Joseph Smith spelled Ryder's last name, R-I-D-E-R, instead of R-Y-D-E-R. It was a small error, but it created a lifelong nemesis in Simon's Ryder. It is said he tore up the certificate, saying if Joseph Smith were a prophet, he would have known how to spell his name. Those bad feelings simmered for months and came to a head when Joseph and Emma Smith moved in with the Johnsons, like I said, right across the street. And Simon's rider was eager to join the mob that night. Whatever the motivation for the mob, Joseph Smith recovered from his injuries, and the Mormons went on to finish their temple in Kirtland. Converts continued to pour into the area over the next few years, growing the church from 300 to nearly 2,000 members by 1835. In 1836, the temple was done, and believers said when it was completed, it accessed the gates of heaven. There was this special dedication ceremony. Joseph and other church leaders bathed and dressed in special garments and then assembled in the church for the ceremony, where those present said they had visions and felt the Spirit of the Holy Ghost enter them. One leader, Oliver Cowdery, remember he's one of the original scribes called the Three Witnesses, he wrote, The glorious scene is too great to be described. I only can say that the heavens were opened, and great and marvelous things were shown. Now, 
I briefly mentioned Joseph Smith's belief in polygamy, something the Mormon Church has not condoned for more than a century. But the roots of that began in Ohio, although there is a bit of a mystery here, too. Joseph and Emma Smith employed a teenage girl named Fanny Alger. She was one of their servants. And there really is no dispute among historians that Joseph had a sexual relationship with her. Their affair was the stuff of rumors in 1837, and it came to a head in 1838 when Oliver Cowdery, remember one of the three original witnesses, wrote to his brother, very disturbed about what he suspected. He said Joseph had embarked on, quote, a dirty, nasty, filthy affair, end quote, with his own teenage servant. He said he confronted Smith about it and that Smith didn't deny taking the girl to his bed. But when others spoke to Joseph Smith about the charge, Smith did deny it vehemently. And so Cowdery was excommunicated from the church for calling Smith an adulterer. By this time, Fanny and her family had already left Kirtland. They ended up in Indiana, where Fanny met and married a non-Mormon, and they went on to have a family. Fanny is so well-known in Mormon history. She has her own Wikipedia page, by the way. But history did a fun thing here. In rewriting about it later, many Mormon historians decided Smith must have actually made Fanny his wife before consummating his marriage. Of course, Joseph was already married to Emma. So if the church wanted to make this point, that would make Fanny Joseph Smith's first step into polygamy. Other historians, however, said there was no marriage, just hot-blooded adultery. And they pointed out that when Smith defended himself against the accusation, he never made the argument that Fanny was his bride. And there was no evidence Fanny had ever spoke about being married to Joseph. I found an account of how Fanny's brother had even asked her about it after Joseph Smith had died, believing maybe she would feel free to talk about it. But reportedly, her answer to him was, that is all a matter of my own, and I have nothing to communicate. Joseph Smith's time in Ohio was coming to an end. And in the end, the collapse of the Kirtland Mormon community by late 1837, just over a year after that temple had been built, wasn't caused by a mob or even outside persecution. It was motivated by internal disputes. Not just the rumors about Fanny, but even more so by allegations of financial fraud. You see, that big, beautiful temple had cost a lot of money, and creditors were hounding Smith to start repaying those loans. So Smith and other church leaders founded a joint stock company called the Kirtland Safety Society Anti-Banking Company. It was this quasi-bank that issued its own banknotes. Smith encouraged his followers to buy the notes, which would give the church money to pay their debts but the bank failed within months. Many believers became disillusioned and many longtime advisors left the church. Finally, a warrant was issued for Smith on a charge of banking fraud. Joseph Smith fled Ohio and went to Missouri 
where the Mormons had their western camp, and those who remained faithful to him in Ohio went as well. In Missouri, the Mormons weren't having an easy time there either. They had been forcibly evicted from some communities, had their properties destroyed, and as the evidence of the church's full embrace of polygamy became obvious, tensions peaked. Smith was only in Missouri about a year when they had to abandon it. Joseph led his followers to a wide open expanse on the Illinois frontier, and he established the new town of Nauvoo, hoping his church had finally found a place where they could exist in peace. Joseph became the town mayor. But Joseph did little to fly under the radar, even declaring himself a U.S. presidential candidate in 1844, running as an independent. The folks of Illinois did not like this. They didn't like him or his church or their practices, and things came to a head again in the spring of 1844. Joseph Smith, as mayor, ordered a newspaper press and office destroyed for being critical of his church, then called on the Nauvoo militia of 5,000 men to arm themselves and prepare to protect his city from outside forces. The Illinois governor ordered Joseph Smith arrested on a charge of treason, and Joseph fled to Iowa to escape the warrant. But when followers started to question his decision not to just stand up to the charge, he returned. He and his brother Hiram and a couple of other church leaders submitted to arrest. The governor, however, could not make good on his promise that the men would be kept safe until their trial. On June 27, 1844, a mob of about 200 armed men, their faces painted black with wet gunpowder, stormed the jail where Joseph and the others were being held in Carthage, Illinois. At first, Smith thought it was his own Nauvoo militia. As the jailer grew nervous at the sight of the oncoming crowd, Smith told him, don't trouble yourself, they've come to rescue me. He was wrong. The mob entered the building and rushed up the stairs, pushing through doors and firing into rooms. Hiram Smith was shot in the face. As he fell to the floor, a witness said Hiram cried out, I am a dead man. He was. Joseph, meanwhile, had actually been smuggled a gun earlier in the day, so he wasn't completely defenseless. And as it became clear that the people storming the jail had not come to rescue him, but to assassinate him, he opened fire, wounding three of his attackers. Then Smith made his way to an upper story window and was preparing to jump when he was shot twice in the back. There are different accounts about what happened next. Some said he died before he hit the ground. Others say he was still alive, so the mob propped his body against a wall, assembled a firing squad, and shot him in unison before fleeing. Well, after such a loss, the church might have faded into history if it weren't for Joseph Smith's successor, Brigham Young. He regrouped what remained of the Illinois Mormons and moved west again, eventually settling in Utah. And as I stated at the start of this podcast, today there are some 17 million Mormons worldwide. In Utah alone, a full 62% of the people living in the state are Mormon. Brigham Young, the second president of the Mormon Church, 
went on to have 55 wives himself. But a couple of decades after his death, in 1890, the church stopped officially supporting polygamy. Steve, did you learn anything new today? Yes. I, I can't believe how violent it got. Uh, they tarred and feathered him. A lot of people think, oh, tarred and feathered. That's a pretty violent act. And then you have to peel the tar off sometimes with knives and stuff. That's crazy. That was pretty bad. And then and then he got assassinated. I mean, he wherever he went, he had to fight against that violence. People did not like their uh, religion being upended into something new. But it's not just that religion. I mean, you can go back as far as, you know, human existence and you'll see any time somebody wants to, you know, switch religion, change things up a little bit. uh, People are going to react very violently to that. Now, I want to put aside the way the Mormon faith got started because I really I feel compelled to say some very nice things about Mormons, because like all faiths, you know, they evolved. Have you met some Mormons, Steve? Yes, I've uh, I've talked to some Mormons before. Yes, I have met young Mormons who are like walking around the neighborhood offering to rake leaves and help elderly residents with household chores. Actually, when my parents were alive, your grandparents, uh, there were a couple of weeks there where they had a couple of young men. They stopped by daily offering to do things for them. They were very sweet and they never pushed their religion on my parents who were lifelong Catholics. Also, I owe the Mormon faith so much for helping me to do my family genealogy. You would appreciate this, Steve. I know you you like the family genealogy I've done. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I didn't know that the Mormons helped you with that, though. Absolutely. As a matter of fact, let me explain. Mormons trace their family trees to find the names of ancestors who died without learning about the restored Mormon gospel. And they do this because they can baptize their ancestors in absentia. But to do that, they have to have the names of their ancestors. So it's really a religious mission of theirs to collect every birth, death, and marriage record that they can find throughout human existence from every country, every culture, and they share it all. You will not get very far in your research of a family tree without turning to the work of the Mormons. I promise you that. And I want to share this little story. I I read this Back in the 1990s, it was during the Bosnian War, and I had been researching my my four branches, and there was one branch of the family tree I couldn't get info from. It was a small village in Yugoslavia. Well, this story was talking about how the Mormons had increased their efforts to collect information out of Bosnia because the rebels were specifically bombing churches and political centers where the records were kept. And so there were teams of Mormons in these unmarked vans with copy machines, and they were sneaking around the country so priests and other community leaders could sneak documents to them. And and they're in these vans recording birth, death, and marriage records to save. And I learned of church in the village of my grandmother was destroyed during that war. And I came to believe, well, I'm never going to get documents from there. But a couple years later— The church records showed up in the Mormon genealogy files, and I knew they had rescued them. It was really cool. I was really rather moved that these folks may have been putting their lives on the line to preserve records of human history. So good for them and, you know, good for us. 
Yeah, uh, they could, you know, maybe maybe instead of having to go through war to get those names, maybe they could just start making up names and put their last name on it and <laughs> kind of baptize them that way. Uh, <laughs> Kevin Yoder, uh, Ezekiel Yoder. <laughs> you know what? If you just did Yoder and added a, one of every name to the beginning, yeah, you'd, you'd probably be covered. But <laughs> anyway, well, that's our story for tonight, Steve. That's it for tonight, listeners. For photos, news clippings, and more on this and every episode, hop on over to our website, ohiomysteries.com. And that brings us to tonight's featured Ohio musical artist. Lisa Bialis is a blues singer out of Oxford. And tonight we're featuring a song called Start Some Mystery. She said the song is about never knowing where love will take you and the delight that comes from exploring a new beginning. She added that secrets are mysterious too. We hold on to them until the time is just right to share them and hope that the receiver still finds us mysterious. Uh, Lisa, you can tell she's a singer-songwriter. Uh, there's poetry in that statement. So go follow Lisa Bialis on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. You can search for her YouTube channel. Lots of videos there. Better yet, just head on over to her website, Lisa Bialis, and Bialis is spelled B-I-A-L-E-S, lisabialis.com. Here's the whole version of Start Some Mystery by Lisa Bialis. Enjoy it, and we'll see you here next week for another episode of Ohio Mysteries.
Hello, this is Gary Chachot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today.